Kelsey, won't you come out? This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Libido Speedway by Orbit with special guest Jeff Robbins. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziek. Jay, it's episode 137 of our third season of Dig Me Out, and we are back with another interview. Uh, we're talking this week with Jeff Robbins, the lead singer and guitar player and songwriter of the band Orbit. Uh, he joined me. You were unavailable f- uh, out on one of your special CIA missions, and... Uh, <laughs> We talked about uh, Orbit, the history of the band. We talked about their uh, debut album, Libido Speedway, which most people are familiar with, and a whole bunch of other things. So, Jay, tell me. Is this a quiz? Yes. Jeez. Um, Are they from Boston? Ding, ding, ding. Uh, I remember the song Medicine, Mm -hmm. right? That was a single. Correct. That's it. That's all I know. That's all you know. So um, I guess our Orbit story is that the reason I know of this band and I have this record and I think they have a record they put out in the late 90s is because um, Paul Buckley ran a small record label, uh, Paul Buckley being the drummer. Right. And our band admitted our record or demos or something to him. And he sort of liked it, I guess, gave us some feedback and we that made me curious about who he was, and I ended up finding myself buying a couple other CDs. So, yeah. there you go. And I remember them from the actual video, which got played in like 120 minutes and stuff, uh, and the single medicine is like you, I believe. So this came out in '97 uh, when I was still, and you and I, you and I were both still at college. So I remember this getting some play at the radio station. But mostly I remember the video, uh, which I don't know if you remember, Jay. It involves uh, ice skating and a Zamboni and some costumed penguin people. (laughs) Uh, I don't remember that. It's very 90s. doesn't make any sense, but it's just sort of fun and has uh, some quirkiness to it. Gotcha. So, yeah, that's uh, that's our lead in to my interview with Jeff Robbins. And now joining us from the band Orbit, where where on the planet Earth, Mr. Jeff Robbins, are you joining us from? <laughs> I mean the greater Providence, Rhode Island area. Providence, Rhode Island. Which is, it's really only, and Providence itself is in the greater Boston area. It is, in fact, the capital of an entirely different state, but really it's only 45 minutes from Boston. If, if this were Texas, you know, I would be in the greater Boston area. And uh, Boston is your, is your hometown, is that correct? Uh, uh, I actually grew up in Connecticut. Um, oh. But again, you know, New England, we keep everything all pretty close together. Um, but yeah, Orbit's from uh, Boston. I, I moved there to go to various schools and eventually drop out and start a band. <laughs> As was uh, the uh, trajectory of numerous 
90s uh, musicians as we've learned over the years. That's how you do it. Turns so, out, turns out, if you want to play music for a living, they don't they don't check your uh, your transcripts. Well, you know, we've had a chance to review and then also talk to a, a number of artists from the Boston area, and a lot of them did form either in college. I'm thinking of uh, or or um or had some sort of college background with regards to their uh, music ability. You know, obviously the Pixies are, are famous. In that end, but then like Juliana Hatfield, or uh, a band that I think you guys are familiar with, the Sheila Divine. Um, we shared a, we shared a, a rehearsal space with the Sheila Divine for a number of years. Yes. Yes, and they and uh, Aaron was on the show not too long ago and regaled us with stories of the Boston music scene in the in the late '90s. Um, was that a band that you guys played with uh, very often besides the practice space? Some uh, we played with them more over the past, prob- probably percentage-wise, more over the past like f- five years <laughs> than we did back then. Back then, uh, we were c- kind of in in a sort of slightly different ends of the sort of alternative rock uh, scene. Although we were, you know, friendly with one another, uh, we we were kind of playing on different bills. We played with them some. Mm-hmm. Um, I always liked them. You guys have, uh, I don't want to get into it too much because we're going to get into the record, but um, Aaron, I think, in terms of his vocal delivery, has one of the more unique uh, yells, I guess you could put it. And um, <laughs> in revisiting Libido Speedway, I, I hadn't remembered, but you do quite a bit of uh, screaming and yelling um, yourself. Uh, I think people are probably, if they're only familiar with the single uh, medicine, then they're probably not going to be aware of that. But on a number of songs, uh, you get pretty pretty rough with your vocal. Was that something that you learned to do, or was it you just kind of did it from when you first started singing, whether it was you know a kid and playing in your garage or whatever, or, or did you go, hmm, I'm going to try screaming and see how that goes? Um, I don't know. It was just always more about sort of suiting the suiting the song but i suppose oftentimes uh you know there's sort of a rhythmic element to things rather than a melodic element to things uh Mm -hmm. you can kind of go either way um you know there were uh, you know a fair amount of uh uh i'm trying to think of good examples of of band i mean the pixies you know certainly sort of in that in that realm at times their early stuff or uh yeah, I mean, just, you know, but like The Fall or something, <laughs> sort of, or even like Lou Reed, kind of these talky, kind, right. kind of sort of not so much on the melodic end of things. And, uh, um, you know, I think that lots of times when writing songs, um, you know, oftentimes we would sort of, um, I would put together ideas for songs and then we'd kind of play them out. Uh, in the rehearsal studio and, and you know, that I, I sort of felt like a song wasn't really a song until it had kind of vibrated off the walls, you know? And uh, um, and in that process, you try to sort of let things sort of flow as much as possible, like um, sort of let them go where they go and try not to make things too logical or, or uh, analytical, you know, uh, and, you know, because if you s- sit down, like, with an acoustic guitar and just kind of, you'll you'll 
saying. It's you and everything's very simple. Right. But when everything's sort of vibrating around in the room like that, uh, you know, you just try to sort of hold on for what you can and sort of tr try and sort of keep it interesting. And sometimes it would end up melodic, but lots of times uh, um, it was it was just a fair amount of yelling. I found, uh, you know, having played some music myself, that if you played in a small room and practice and didn't necessarily have a great PA, it forced you to push yourself uh, vocally. At least that's what I would tell our lead singer. <laughs> and uh, that would force him to be a little more emotive and a little bit more, not emotive in the emo sense, but just, you know, let the vocal rip a little bit more because, hey, we can't hear you. You need to sing louder. <laughs> I Yeah, I guess that can go both ways. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I... I've never, I've always had a very, <laughs> very resonant and strong voice. I, I remember in, you know, grade school that, you know, someone would say, hey, Jeff, you know, blah, 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 something. And I'd respond and say, hey, I, you know, shut up. We can't talk because it's class, you know. And the teacher would go, Jeff, go to the principal's office. You know? <laughs> and it occurred to me after this happened a few times, it's like, my voice carries more and and I've just sort of come to embrace that over time <laughs> you know when I actually sat down to you know and 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 uh I mean I mostly started singing out of necessity I never really uh had hopes to be the singer of a band um I really wanted to more be sort of a more background person but uh but all the singers were wrong <laughs> wrong in various ways uh ego problems or just bad singers or whatever and so i sort of kind of stepped out there and it's like well i i don't know that i can do you know be a good singer but uh you know if if uh bob dylan keith or uh, uh mick jagger you know like i i can at least make something that's emotive and staying key, really. That's 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 the. That's most not even important. that important. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Greg staying Dooley's already key proved is that. overrated these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it was your like band experience? Did that start in high school? With you said, you know, sort of being the side man and not wanting to be the the lead singer, letting other people do that. Was that high school time, or was that when you're getting towards college? A little of both. Um, in. I, I think high school, I mean, I started a, a band with sort of some friends who were my age and, uh, um, and that, you know, went, it went all right, but I, I kind of wanted to do more. And so I, I ended up getting in a band with, um, a, a bunch of guys who were already graduated and in college. And so by the time, you know, I mean, I turned, 16 <laughs> and it pretty much was like out playing you know gigs that just sort of were sort of baffling to my parents where it was like you know we would go on at midnight on a wednesday night and uh <laughs> you know stuff yeah like for a 16 year old that's that's a pretty aggressive uh yeah, uh, yeah schedule it was, it was difficult to sort of make it all add up but uh, it was, you know, it was good experience. But I was, I was actually a keyboard player back then. That was, I was a synthesizer guy. I had oh. early. This was probably 1984, 83, 84. I had a, you know, sort of one of the early uh, 
I had a Roland and then I had a Korg synthesizer. <laughs> and uh, yeah, did, did that for a while. So was that like Depeche Mode, Flock of Seagulls type stuff, or were yeah. you doing a more industrial? Uh, yeah, yeah. Ministry? Again, I, I learned. I learned a lot. No, no. It was it, it was more in the Depeche Mode, Flock of Seagulls realm of things. I was actually in a band uh, uh, at one point. This was a little bit later on in, in high school. That was um, first of all, it was five guys in the band. Three of the guys were named Jeff. <laughs> which was already confusing enough. But all of the instruments, it was synthesized drums, it was two guys on keyboard synthesizer, and the guy had a, a MIDI synthesized guitar, and then there was a singer who also sometimes played bass, and I think the bass may have been the only non, non-synthesized instrument. And uh, it sounded horrible. It was just a horrible noise when each each individual thing sounded like a choir of angels you know and but, <laughs> but you put like five choirs of angels together and and you're no longer with the angels shall we say uh and and you know i learned a lot about that and, and that was sort of the point where i just was like i don't i sort of have you know my brain works around all this tech stuff but it doesn't seem the right way to make the music I want to make and so I uh, that was actually when I started playing guitar um, and kind of moved to guitar as my primary instrument and and realized that I could spend all the time I wanted with a drum machine and a, and a synthesizer and I could come up with some sort of interesting bits interesting mm-hmm. loops but I wasn't actually writing songs but when I sat down with a guitar I could I could write a song uh, and so that's sort of how that stuff got started was there any particular records or uh, artists that you yeah. heard that when you got that yeah. guitar, you're like, I want to do that? Yeah, the first uh, the first Billy Bragg album. I was uh, I, I remember very specifically. Uh, I was dri- I think I was driving home from a rehearsal with this synth band, <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, you know listening to college radio in Connecticut, and. Uh, and they put on uh, Billy Bragg's "A New England" was the song, and I was just, I was just floored. I was like, "This is t- totally," <laughs> it, you know. I don't know. I don't know if you're familiar with Billy Bragg, mm-hmm. especially that early stuff. But I mean, it was just him and an electric guitar, you know. And he had this, you know, Cockney British accent, and it, and it was just like different. I mean, it, it was very. It, you could hear the clash in it. But you could also hear Bob Dylan in it, and it was just totally not all those things that were sort of happening on the new wave synth end of things, and and I was just like this this I I got to totally rethink the direction I'm going in, uh, and uh, and that yeah that kind of inspired me in a in a whole different direction. Now I know there's a a bit of a time leap between that and and then Orbit. So what were what were the uh, the influences that sort of started shaping you um, between that first Billy Bragg and then, say, 94 when Orbit's forming? Is it 94? Is that the correct year? Yeah. yeah okay. uh, well, Based on Orbit, Wikipedia? Yeah, Orbit, yeah. Orbit formed, I think, in 93, and we, and we, got, we signed in 94. Um, when you say signed, are you talking about lunch? We, we signed to A&M Records. Oh, and A&M, okay. 
Now, had you uh, released anything at that point? Because I've gone through the discography, and I know that you know Libido Speedway came out in '97, but there were EPs before that. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, what's the story behind the signing? Everything good in life is born of frustration, right? Uh, okay. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I was I was in a, a cup. I I moved to Boston, uh, graduated high school, and moved to Boston, and said, you know, like being in Connecticut, you you kind of have t- the the two adjacent opportunities are are boston and new york city and i thought jesus i'm <laughs> like i i have no idea how i'll conquer new york city but boston maybe 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 i could figure that out and i could go up and sort of pretend to be in college and uh um you know get a band started um and uh and so i did that i went to a year of music school and realized that i needed to that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't the right thing for me, and uh, um, and uh, and then I I started a band that did that did all right in Boston. I mean, we were you know a, a Boston local band, uh, and uh, but it ended up being just sort of frustrating. The the uh, personalities in that band were not uh, uh i don't know how to say it diplomatically not supportive uh it was it was sort of a you know kind of a dysfunctional entity as as a band you know gotcha, gotcha, sort of ha- yeah. all had different goals uh and uh not unified uh, it, it was not uh but you know we we um did pretty well we had a uh had a manager who also managed a a, a club uh, on Lansdowne Street, which was a, um, which is sort of where a lot of the, mostly sort of dance clubs are in Boston, but mm-hmm. but they were also starting to play uh, more and more live music, especially, uh, you know, at that time in the '90s, uh, Nirvana had just broken through, and uh, a lot of the radio stations were kind of changing their formats, and there was a lot of opportunity for uh, music and. Um, and live music sort of in places that it wasn't before. I mean, like, you know, the hair metal bands were, you know, were playing arenas, but now all of a sudden there were bands sort of like Weezer, you know, who were, mm-hmm. who were coming through. And, uh, um, and so, you know, we were, we were sort of in, in that uh, world a little bit. Uh, and, and then, but, but basically, uh, I sort of had a had a falling out with the band <laughs> and they had a they had a, a band meeting uh and decided that they'd they'd had enough of me. I, I was agitating. I basically came to them and said, Listen, I think I've I've got this figured out. Like just let me write a bunch of songs. I've I got some ideas here. I, if you let me follow through my ideas, I think we can really make this happen. And they that was the straw that broke the camel's back with them. So they had a band meeting, decided to kick me out of the band. <laughs> and we had one show, uh, uh, but they d- decided they would tell me after this one show. And uh, so we played this show uh, and the band's walking around all mopey. Uh, but, it, you know, but I'm talking to the band, but we're, op- we're opening for this band and I'm watching their sound check and they're this great band like they're just i'm watching their sound check and they're just blowing me away and i go up and i'm talking to them they're really nice guys and uh um and we play the show uh the band my whole band's weird and mopey 
Um, the next day, they kicked me out. That band that we opened for was Radiohead. It was their what? first. It was their very first U.S. date ever that they'd ever played. It, and uh, and yeah, so my last date with that band uh, was was Radiohead's first date in the U.S. Um, and then so they kicked me out, and uh, I went out and bought a drum machine and started writing all these uh, songs that I'd been thinking about, and went out with these sort of demo tapes that I put together and rather than sort of finding people uh, that wanted to put together a band and then we would figure out what kind of music it would be, um, I went out with this music and said, this is the kind of music I want to do. If you want to do this kind of music, come join my band. Uh, and I found Paul Buckley um, really quickly through a friend uh, and we got together and, and uh, jammed uh, in his bedroom in, in Chelsea uh, Chelsea Mass, um, and uh, it, like right right away, it just clicked. It was like I didn't even need to yell out like chorus verse. It was just we were just totally on the on the same wavelength, and it continued like that for quite some time. So then, when does the the A and M thing come in? Uh, well, you know, I mean, the, like I said, the, there was a lot of sort of change happening in the music industry around then. Uh, Boston was a really vibrant scene. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like you said, Juliana Hatfield, uh, Tracy Bonham, Jen Trinan, uh, Belly was, you know, technically from down here in Rhode Island, but they right. were doing a lot of hanging out up there. Dennis uh, Jr., Sebado. Oh, man. Yeah, all that. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the East Coast Seattle. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, it was just great, you know. And And so, you know, there were some record labels who were kind of nosing around anyways, but... Um, both Paul and I had been in these six successful isn't quite the right word Boston local bands like mm-hmm. sort of successful but it feels like kind of within a realm like like there's sort of a border around it and so we we said we don't we don't want to be a Boston defined local band. So so our first gig, Orbit's first gig ever, we played in New York City. We drove down and we played oh man, some really crappy club on the Lower East Side and the Lower East Side was even lower than it is now uh, <laughs> back back in 93. And uh uh and uh yeah, that was a, you know, which but it was just this sort of like thing we we want to not think provincially you know mm-hmm. we want it and so we also we started a record label paul had been running a, a record label a little bit on the side uh, called breakfast records um we we got a cease and desist after putting out our first single and from some guy who said i'm breakfast records we said fine we'll be lunch records so we changed it to lunch <laughs> records and uh and started putting out not only our stuff but stuff by other bands because again we just wanted to kind of cr- stop being in this sort of like subservient position of mm-hmm. like defining ourselves by people who are around us and 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 looking sort of tr- trying triangulating uh, our our decisions about what we should do based on uh, you know this feedback of 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 these I'm you know local people uh, I don't know how to explain right. it other than that you know. And uh, and so I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's funny because uh, turns out 
um, that's exactly what record labels are looking for is, you know, initiative and thinking big and uh, um, doing it yourself and figuring out your own direction and uh, having creative control and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it was within, I don't know, six months of forming the band. Uh, we had record labels kind of sniffing around. Um, uh, we had a, you know, little cassette EP kind of thing that we get got to a guy who was a program director at WFNX um, radio station in Boston and he loved it and uh, um, and started just sending it out to all sorts of record labels and stuff and and we got into one of those record label bidding wars that you hear about and ended up talking to I don't know 20 some record labels by the time we decided to sign with A&M back when there were 20 record, record labels back when there were 20 record labels i know <laughs> so at what point does uh fred and then the first bass player mark uh enter the picture so mark was mark was you know we had <laughs> it's a it's a sad story of of the lullabot bass players over the years um we auditioned uh we you know we sort of held auditions for bass players but again you know it was this kind of thing it was like let's not let stupid things like not having a bass player hold us back <laughs> let's just do this thing you know and so we aud- auditioned uh um people and we met this guy named wally gagel uh uh who was you know we hit it off with it was a really great guy uh great bass player um and we asked him to, to you know we're like hey you know join the band and he said oh i can't um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of committed to this other group and I've got these other things going on and I'm starting sort of a career as a, an engineer and producer, but I would love to record you guys. So we went in and recorded our first demos with Wally. Uh, and it wasn't until after we'd done those demos, those demos that we sent off to the program director at the radio station and stuff that we, that we found Mark. Um, and, uh, and so Mark played on some of the later demos and, and I think Mark played that show in, in New York City with us and, and stuff like that. But uh, but Mark didn't didn't last through the, <laughs> the recording of the first album. But again, Wally was still still sort of in the orbit <laughs> in the in the. Uh, uh, no, you can use that word. That's OK. I, you know, I, I, one of the one of the things about being named Orbit as a band is we, we came up with certain uh, certain were things you like branding marketing for the for the band you couldn't use it as a pun you couldn't put a picture of saturn on on any of the posters for the band because every time we'd show up for a damn gig they'd be orbits playing and there'd be a, uh, someone would have drawn you know a, a planet with rings like saturn mm-hmm. much as, you know you want people to know it's a planet and not a moon or something um uh <laughs> Anyways, but you know, Wally was still around. Uh, Wally engineered our first AM album. Uh, and all that time, we we're like, yeah, come play with us, come play with us. And so uh, I think it was, we put together some like subliminal recording tapes. You take music and you play, and then like underneath it, you like, Wally joined the band. Wally joined the band. And we would play that while he was sleeping. Um, and eventually, uh, it got through to him. Um, and uh, and so when we finally started touring for Libido Speedway, Wally was in the band, in the pictures of the band, and things like that. But uh, yeah, 
But by that point, he had actually recorded um, the song Natural One. Right, for, yeah. Um, Folk Implosion. Folk, Folk Implosion and was so, on the kids' soundtrack. Yeah, and that song became a huge hit. I think it, it like went into like the top 10 like billboard mm-hmm. like, charts and stuff and uh he got asked to produce a song for the rolling stone so we're like you know on tour and meanwhile like wally's flying to go meet with mick jagger and record keith richards and fly back and get back on tour with us and he'd say he'd say you know what'd you guys do we say oh we stayed at a motel somewhere in west texas and wally would say oh i sat in a car and listened to mixes with Mick Jagger. <laughs> so it was it's a bit different. Yeah, it's a bit, you know, different experience. But, uh, you know, Motel 6 is nice. <laughs> sure, they have, they leave the light on for you. Yeah, uh, they do now. They do now. <laughs> so why the, the uh, they oh, I'm leaving. sorry, go ahead. They, this was in the 90s. They right. weren't leaving the light on yet. So why was there a three-year difference between when you guys formed and signed A and M, and then actual, the actual album coming out? We put out um, we put out a uh, an EP kind of thing called uh, Lamano, uh, and actually recorded a video for uh, a song on it, and um, and did a lot of touring on that because I mean we'd only been in a band for six months, mm-hmm. and so the label said you know. Listen, you know, I mean, one of the reasons that we went with A&M was because they were kind of like a long-term artist-friendly label. and They wanted uh, to actually develop you? Yeah, yeah. It was like, you know, build a career. Uh, uh, Soundgarden was on A&M. Right. And uh, they'd put out, like, what, like five albums before kind of breaking through. And, uh, um, you know, the label was really friendly. And, and, uh, and so we decided it'd be a good idea to sort of put out something and kind of get some touring together. Uh, and, and so we uh, put out Lamano and, and, and toured for about a year on that. And then, uh, and then went into the studio and, and spent about a year, uh, you know, writing songs and, and recording uh, the album that became Libido Speedway. So you took the Guns N' Roses approach, which was, it, well, put out the EP first and not after the record. <laughs> I, 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 I don't track uh, Guns N' Roses' career very carefully. Oh, but, that's what but we call the Guns N' Roses move. They had a, that Chinese Democracy album took a really long time. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, not that long. Right. Uh, so at what point are you writing songs for Libido Speedway? Is that something that you're, like, once the Lamano EP comes out, do you start fresh? Or was there material that had been around since you guys formed that, you know, a lot of bands build up when they first form, they build up a big selection of songs and then they sort of have to pick the best songs for that first record. Whereas on the second record, it's like you're sort of recording for the second record and you're not, you don't have that big selection. Well, so yeah, was, I mean, the, the classic mistake in my mind is this idea of saving songs like, oh, this is too good to put out now. We'll put it out later. You know, I think you end up sort of constipating yourself that way. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, just put out good stuff and and kind of prime the pump, get the get the flow going, you know? Um, I, I You know, I mean, I think that there are song, songs that sort of take different speeds to come together. I mean, there were certainly, 
you know, I, we had tapes and tapes of ideas. Uh, and, you know, you'd listen to it the first time and think like, eh, I don't know if this is worth pursuing. And then go back to it later and say, well, actually, let's revisit this again. And it would sort of take shape later on. So it's sort of hard to say. I mean, it's not it's not quite as linear a process, at least for, for me and us as, as that. Um, I think that there were, you know, some ideas that predated uh, Lamano that made it onto Libido Speedway, but but for the most part, you know, we were we were putting what we thought were sort of the the better songs that we had. I mean, the Lamano is called Lamano because it's just got five songs on it, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah. So did, did you get the dreaded record label pushback? We don't hear a single, or was it? Did, did you deliver the record? And they said, okay, that's good to go. <sighs> No, we no, we never heard. We don't hear a single. Um, no, it wasn't so, like so medicine was on the first. But oh, like... medicine was never a single. <laughs> really? <laughs> it was. It was. You know, I think it, like on most of our early demo tapes, it was just labeled like Pixies ripoff song. <laughs> well, we'll get into. <laughs> you know, it's like to uh, me that seems so blatantly the single. Should we even finish this song? You know. And, uh, you know, I mean, you, you really lose perspective. You know, there, there's no such thing as objectivity and creativity. You, you, right. you get so deep into it that, you know, uh, this is why bands need producers and uh, even to some extent A&R people and that kind of thing. Well, let's, get, let's dig into Libido Speedway a little bit. And we actually... Uh... We like to post the record a few weeks before we're going to review it on our Facebook page, and then people will give us feedback on what they think of the album so that we can then present that feedback uh, as a part of the episode. So we had some people who chimed in on uh, on this the album. People who remember Libido Speedway usually have good things to say, which is a nice <laughs> a nice way of, of being. Uh, yeah. so it, wasn't so, it wasn't so, so shoved in people's faces that that uh, people formed a whole lot of negative opinions about it. So go ahead, tell me what the feedback was. I'm going to give you some, uh, yeah, some of this feedback, and you can refute or uh, or or uh, uh, prove it true. Um, well, okay. most of these are just obs- I don't know. Uh, Garrett Lippincott said, "Great disc. Saw them at the Electric Factory in '99 with the Low Fidelity All Stars. Interesting show. Is that true? You guys play with the Low Fidelity All Stars? No." No. Uh, uh, <laughs> Is he thinking he, of Orbital? He's, yeah, he's probably thinking of Orbital, William Orbit, or perhaps even the Orb. Uh, William Orbit was one guy. If I remember correctly, uh, Orbital is two guys, uh, electronic music. All these are electronic music. And mm-hmm. Orbital, I think, was four guys. It was like it, it was like one, two, three, four guys, and we were the three one, but we had guitars. That was the particular difference okay so we've dispelled that one all right good knocked it out next one tim james says it was a mistake to not release bicycle song as a single if you know, they had i think it could have been a hit yeah that was the next single um so what it's a happened? little long for a single though it's like 5 yeah, i think that there was a radio edit of it or something like okay. that um so uh yeah i mean uh, again uh we went with AM Records, artist friendly label. We wanted a career. We didn't want a hit. And uh and so um 
medicine, lottery action was, you know, God, I don't know, it was like the top added song that week on modern rock radio. And um, we got into the modern rock chart, top 10 chart and um, did all right. It got us on the Lollapalooza tour and uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, when it had kind of run its course, AM put out Bicycle Song and it didn't do quite, it didn't react quite the same way. I mean, it's just, I'm talking like a record label now. Ah, the product isn't reacting in marketing locations. But, uh, um, and so, but they kind of came to us and said, listen, we could keep, you know, we could really push on this and try and make it happen. But why don't you guys just go in and get started on a, another album? Like, we think you guys have it in you. Let's, let's just do this rather than like, you know, pushing this second single and spending a lot of money and, uh, you know, trying to make it uh, sort of cr create something that wasn't happening organically on its own. Let's just uh, let's do another album. And uh, and that's what we did. Uh, however, <laughs> it, you know, it took us a, a year to write the songs and record the album. And then we delivered it and uh, record labels back then. And I, I suspect these days too uh although i think that probably the internet is changing things a bit um aren't like they were you know in the in the 60s when no you know the beatles and the beach boys and the stones would record would would like release you know two albums a year uh they they would schedule it way out well we think that this is a uh you know uh fall release because we want to get it to college radio and uh you know and it's august now so we don't have enough ramp up time for this year so next year <laughs> and all of a sudden you'd find yourself with you know 13 months to kill uh and and that's sort of where we ended up um and during that time period um i moved to nashville just to see what it'd be like to live in nashville for a while it was nice uh, but then A&M got bought. They got merged in with uh, Geffen and Interscope Records. Um, and the sort of resulting record label these days is called Universal Records. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the process, uh, a bunch of accountants came in and dropped 150 bands between the three re record labels, including Primus, I might add. <laughs> uh you know well they, there's no they did the south park theme so you know there's something there uh anyways but uh, i don't know how they would not be generating revenue based just simply on that well yeah yeah so uh well <laughs> so yeah so we ended up uh we ended up getting dropped after all that and we recorded an album and delivered the album uh uh and the record label kept that album because they'd paid for that album and is that Guide to Better Living, which was then re later released as the Lost Album? That is that is correct. Yes. That's my research. Yes. Wikipedia. It's, and so, it, you know, we'd spent, you know, a year, year and a half sort of birthing this album, uh, you know, putting it all together and um, and and found ourselves sort of in a in the funny position of like, oh, I this is this. Could we find another record label to put this out? How would that work? Should we? 
maybe record some more stuff. We went in and recorded a little bit more stuff just to kind of be able to put out stuff. Um, We recorded an EP that we called Tone Deaf because we were just feeling so (laughs) just like, you know, kind of lost so much perspective by that point because it was just sort of feeling like uh, and we were feeling tone deaf. We were feeling like, you know, we we kept sort of making music, but it wasn't it wasn't going out, you know. And so we put out that, and and we liked that music all right. Um, and uh, but by that point, I mean the record the record industry was really different, and uh, and the radio was really different. I mean it was that it was that change from. A, a little bit of Nickelback to a lot of Nickelback. Yeah, I'm wondering if you guys <laughs> and and, uh, and Limp Biscuit and Britney Spears and uh, and the record labels basically said, "Yeah, we saw you guys play in '94. It's not what we're looking for right now." And, right. Uh, and so we we did sort of finish a full length album, uh, sort of built onto what was had been put out as as tone deaf, uh, and and created a full length album called. A, and put that out ourselves um, sort of getting back into that DIY realm of things uh, but by that point Paul's wife was pregnant with twins and the money had kind of all run out and we were just all kind of spent it was just like we'd sort of completed the marathon and it had crossed the line and everyone was like yay you did it <laughs> we just sort of collapsed in a heap and uh, and that was that was kind of that for, for Orbit well I, I want to go back for a sec because you mentioned about the, the rise of sort of new metal and that I guess we'd call it like the third wave of grunge with like Nickelback and Creed and, and those sorts of bands. Did you guys like, you know, musical movements are often recognized in pat in the past tense and, or in, or in hindsight and people don't necessarily see the, like the ground shifting. Um, but in looking back like 96, 97, when that year sort of came about, there's like a dramatic shift. You can see it in the charts when you look at the charts back from Billboard. You can see the the third wave of grunge with those bands ha- happening. You can see the boy bands with like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, and then yep. the Britney Spears. And in the same way that like the metal bands from the '80s talk about how you know they would walk into their label offices and they'd see the new Warrant album would be on the wall. And then that album was replaced within a week by the new Alice in Chains album. I'm wondering how much, like, did, was there like a really like uh, blatant change that you were like, whoa, what the hell just happened? Or was it more like something is going on here and I'm not quite sure what it is? Well, I, you know, it was really it was just like a pendulum swing really uh you know there was a there was a point uh in what, like 92 93 when did when did uh nevermind come out uh september 91 same there you go 91. one week from uh use your illusion one and two okay right yeah, that's like yeah. the key it's the key yep. week the key point, between right? those two uh releases so, yeah so in the year after nevermind came out um everything changed i mean mm-hmm. like in the you know we know it from hearing the radio but like 
if you think of it from a sort of a corporate overlord sense, like they got knocked off their thrones. Like, you know, I mean, this, this, you know, the people who did coke with Bob Seger, you know, started doing <laughs> coke, coke with, uh, I, I don't know, uh, name a crappy band from the 80s, you know, and, 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 and then that became doing coke with Poison and Warrant and, I don't know all those crappy bands, and uh, and all of a sudden, like that whole realm just got sort of knocked off because, I mean, Nirvana for the the attitude of being anti corporate also sort of had the, you know I mean, it kind of was that like um, a lot of that old bullshit just didn't didn't play you know I mean. Um, these bands, you know, weren't they weren't making deals over heaps of coke anymore, you know, and uh, um, and so a, a lot of that sort of old guard of people kind of had to like step aside a little bit. They changed the formats of these, you know, these radio stations that had been playing Warrant up until, you know, middle of '91. Uh, um, all of a sudden, mm -hmm. they changed their format to this new thing, and they didn't understand it, so they had to hire. Um, all these, you know, program directors from college stations to, to come in and, you know, please explain alternative rock to us. We don't even speak this language. Like, you know, we try to throw, you know, hookers and coke at these bands and they're just laughing at us, you know. And, uh, uh, and so, so there was that. And that lasted about 10 years. And then, like, it sort of morphed and morphed back into that realm of like corporate rock you know sort of controllable i mean it, you know all those things started to come in that you know we got more and more from a audio production standpoint we got more and more compression we got more and more you know less and less of the steve albini <laughs> mm -hmm. and, more, and more and more compression and more and more uh um uh you know the auto tune and and uh um and, and and sort of aggro uh testosterone driven um kind of music i mean the the aggro you know not that not that uh there wasn't a certain amount of aggro to mud honey or nirvana even but uh it was it was expressed in a different way it wasn't quite as uh misogynistic and shitty well it was you know <laughs> nirvana's angst was was i think a, a, a sort of a, an eye towards what was going on in culture, whereas Limp Biscuit was like break stuff, literally the break stuff. Yeah, <laughs> like it it was well, an infantile it, it, it rage. Became, uh, there, you know, and there was that crossover, that sort of uh, rap rock thing. That mm -hmm. you know, the guys from Corn, like you know, I'm so effing rich and I got all this gold and I got all these hookers and I'm all up in the porn, you know. And uh, it's cool, but, you know. Well, we just did the, um, I don't know if you remember this movie, Judgment Night. And there was a soundtrack that went along with the movie Judgment Night that was uh, rock artists and rap artists performing together. So you uh -huh. had like uh, Pearl Jam and Cypress Hill did a song together. See, but that and, stuff is all right, and it because, and it, it works. It was, yeah, in some it, some ways, in some I, ways well, it doesn't. I you know, I mean, conceptually that's all right. You know, uh, KRS One and REM. You know, right? right? Like, you know, it's sort of a, a crossover that's nobody's pretending to be something that they aren't. <laughs> 
Uh, and it was it was a, it came out in '93, and there was a I think a a genuine attempt to to come to sort of cross over audiences and try to say you know this rock of Pearl Jam and Living Color and Cyp- and uh, the hip hop of Cypress Hill and Del the Funky Homo Sapien is just as alternative to you know teenagers whatever their backgrounds are and there's no reason why you can't listen to both i don't know how well it actually crossed over we did have an astounding number of people who really liked that record and who came out of the woodwork to talk about it um but it's it almost seems like antiquated now because the the rock stars of the 90s the eddie vetters and the you know kurt cobain's They've all sort of been replaced by the hip hop, like Jay Z and Kanye West are essentially the rock stars of today. And it's you now you have to get like occasionally like Chris Martin will like guest on, or or some <laughs> rock artist will guest on a on a rap song instead of KRS One appearing on a you know an REM song. And the the script has sort of flipped in that regard. Well, I I would suppose I mean in in a good way. Uh, you, you, it's. It's almost to draw. There are no parallels. You can, you can't draw them. I mean, you know that each each sort of generation, every ten fifteen years of music, the people who are listening to music ten fifteen years ago, ought to say like, oh, I, don't, I don't understand what's going on here. That's progress, <laughs> right? That's you know, that's yeah. like that's how it ought to be. Uh, and uh, you know, so so yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean. I don't know that that uh, Jay Z is the uh, Eddie Vedder or Kurt Cobain of now. Uh, he's the Jay Z of now, and they were well they in the were sense the that he has a, a a media cachet. You know, Eddie Vedder got in front of Congress and railed about Ticketmaster. Jay Z has Obama on his phone. I mean, they're they're essentially playing the role of the the voice, quote unquote, of a generation. And they ought to, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So well, whether they ought to or not is a is a different argument. But well, somebody uh, ought to. Yeah. <laughs> and we need to talk about for somebody to put on the screen. <laughs> we we need to talk about less Jay Z and and more Orbit here. So Jay, right. my my absent co-host, he had some questions and and stuff that I I wanted to bring up as well. Um, so we'll just go through the record and you can shoot these out uh answers out as quickly as you'd like to because he's got a bunch of questions here so for uh the first song on the record yeah and he tied this also into uh why you won't uh which is the ninth song on the record he asked he said these have a very nirvana feel and i I thought the exact same thing sort of a nirvana bleach feel to me and i'm Mm -hmm. wondering or we're both wondering how much of an influence nirvana was and how conscious it was to write songs that harkened back. Because at that point, you know, I guess I don't know when the songs were written per se, but Bleach came out in the 80s. I mean, that was like an 89 release. So mm-hmm, that's a kind mm-hmm. of an old album. But um, I guess we're playing Spot the Influence. Are we Are we getting close on that?
in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always a little dubious of being too influenced. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, it was certainly in the in the stew of influence. I mean, mostly the thing with Nirvana was just the reminder uh, that the attitude, and especially Bleach, was the attitude was sort of more important than again, you know, playing the right notes or finding a bass player. <laughs> it was just like, just go, you know? Uh, and, and yeah, that first song was what you hear was basically made up in the studio. Uh, I mean that you, you sort of hear the laughing at the beginning and, and it's Paul and I like who, who should start this? How are we going to start the song? Like what is the song? Like, and I'm like, I've got these, I've got this chord riff. Let's just go. And when we get to a chorus, we'll make up a chorus. And then maybe the next time the chorus comes around, hopefully we'll remember what that chorus was. And that's it, you know. Um, and and it was certainly that same kind of energy that I was hearing uh, from Nirvana with with uh, with Nevermind. Um, uh, um, they were uh, sort of starting in that in a new realm of of uh, digital recording with, with Butch Vig. Um, and he was doing a lot of, um, was, was appropriate uh, for, for Nevermind, but mm -hmm. um, got worse and worse over the course of the, of the nineties <laughs> until, you know, it became what we hear now with Nickelback records. Right. Now or I'm not, I'm not, I'm not blaming just to, just to be clear. This is not Butch Vig's fault. Butch Vig stopped when he should have. I actually, he actually with garbage, went in in the proper direction with that kind of production of sort of making that part of the milieu of the uh the music well well that's I, a, that's a, I, well I'm not saying i'm not saying i'm a huge garbage fan i'm just saying that garbage makes clear use of technology that, that it is rather than right. sort of this insidious kind of uh insidiousness that that that, that technology started to sort of get into uh, Jay and I have sort of a, a a bone to pick with garbage because it 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 stopped uh, Shirley Manson from making any more Angelfish records, which um, we both kind of think is a far superior uh, band <laughs> to garbage. But uh, that's for music nerds to debate uh, on another another podcast. Bicycle song track two. We mentioned one of the people who left feedback said they thought it should have been a single. Jay asks, uh, "Is this really about a bicycle?" And what bicycle in particular? Uh, no. Uh, so what's the meaning behind a just, the bicycle I just, song? I mean, the songwriting process was was basically to sort of, you know, we'd, we'd like I said, sort of ring them out <clears throat> in the in the the rehearsal room. And and uh, when we got signed, I mean, we were playing in front of uh playing in front of record labels i mean lots of record labels we i think we went down to south by southwest and played a showcase during that time and there were you know lots of people there and like i would say a half to three quarters of our songs didn't have lyrics <laughs> i was just sort of making stuff up as the you know you know and oftentimes it was like during the i would kind of get off stage and go like i write that down some good stuff and uh, and a lot of stuff just sort of came about that way or, you know, or 
after we'd, we'd actually record stuff in the studio and then I'd kind of go back and, and uh, um, put, you know, sort of come up with some sort of coherent words that sort of matched the vocalizing and, and sort of attitude of things. Um, and for a while I was, I was kind of like embarrassed about it. I felt like it wasn't real songwriting, but then I, I just, uh, just last year read David Burns, um, book, how music works. And he basically did the same thing. And I read Keith Richards book and he said, basically Mick Jagger was doing the same kind of thing. So I don't feel so bad about it, but, uh, it's pretty just abstract stuff, you know, kind of imagery that had a little bit of meaning to me, but um, I thought was sort of evocative and uh, and people might sort of bring their own stuff in. But, you know, it was it, it's sort of that uh, uh, idea of sort of being a, a kid and what your bicycle means to you and the like that putting a card in the spokes <laughs> you know those kind of things that like sure. were kind of cool then and then you kind of into girls and you kind of get more into girls and cars uh, bicycles sort of turn into cars and you know and your relationship with girls change and you know and so i don't know it's just sort of that sort of touching on that stuff gotcha i'm gonna jump ahead uh to medicine sleeping in but I'm gonna get myself some cream moose sheets. Baby, come back. Make yourself whole. Baby, come home. Chunk the medicine down. He mentioned a. a a thing about the drum beat in this song and it, it sort of turns around at the end of the mm-hmm. chorus yeah um and the shaker is a really big part of that <laughs> song uh, was that added in production or was that something that paul actually plays on his as a part of his kit and then how if not how does he do that live because it is a big aspect of the of the song yeah i you know the biggest thing i learned about you know professional recording was uh was the role of the shaker <laughs> <laughs> If you ever want to just kick a song up to the next notch, shaker, just bring in the shaker, egg shaker, kabasa, one of those kabasas, but you got to have some shakers in the studio. It's just push it, push it over the top. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it was, that was an overdub. Um, uh, you know, we were just sort of looking to kind of kick it up. Uh, I mean, that whole album was itself sort of a, uh, a production reaction to what was happening um, in in Boston. I mean, Boston had this really great indie rock scene. I mean, a lot of those bands that we mentioned were all really great mm-hmm. indie rock bands, Buffalo Tom and Dinosaur and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and there was, you know, this really strong sort of lo-fi thing happening that, that we were into, but we... Um, we kind of wanted to try, see if we could sort of combine that with a more hi-fi kind of thing. And so um, the producer that we worked with was a guy named Ben Gross, who we heard because uh, the filter, he'd done that filter album, which had Hey Man, Nice Shot on it. Short Bus, yeah. 
Short Bus, yeah. And it just, I mean, that album's just a monster, you know? Just you put that thing on and you crank it up and it just blow the speakers out, man. And it was just like, oh, what if we could do something that sort of had kind of that, you know, indie honesty to it, um, but, you know, had a big low end. And uh, and so we went with Ben Gross and, uh, and yeah, ended up doing a lot of overdubs and, and things like shakers. And I think there's even a drum loop that, that is sort of buried in there that kind of that kind of adds to the energy in, in there. And uh, it was interesting, I, you know, in, in retrospect, um, you know, if if the orbit trajectory had continued out, I think um, our albums would have gotten a bit. Uh, the word the word I've used is gossamer, a bit more like less thick, uh, less more, a little bit more see through, you know, more space. Uh, yeah, we'd 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 sort of gotten so into the overdubs and and kind of, you know, um, you know, making that thick music uh, that was really fun uh, and fun to play live. But uh, uh, you know, even um, like Mud Honey or something like that isn't, you know, it's it's heavy but not that kind of thick, not that mm-hmm. produced, you know, so. So it doesn't necessarily mean lighter music, you know, um, but uh, um, but just not quite so slick. So you deny knowing this was a single, and that this was just a pixie. You claim that it was a Pixies uh, ripoff. Well, everybody's got their own opinions. I, I think our producer liked that song as a single, uh, and he, you know, put a little extra. Um, you know fairy dust on there or whatever just because he wanted you know and that's all that extra stuff so um but i still think it's just a pixies rip off <laughs> well it definitely has that you know the bass in the verse and then your guitar part sounds a little joey santiago-ish uh i'm assuming that's your playing that that lead that comes in like halfway through each of the verses yeah, yeah, yeah. um it i mean it has those sort of elements but the chorus is definitely not to me, it's it's much more of a. I mean, Frank Black. Frank Black would not have. He would have yelped something in Spanish in the chorus or something <laughs> like that. That wouldn't have been his his direction in the chorus. Um, I did rewatch the video for uh, mm-hmm. for the song. Uh, is there a narrative to the video? Because there's oh. a there's an ice rink and a girl, and then there's some penguins uh, skating around and a zamboni. Yeah, well, I, I, I've always felt like the best uh, music videos had just had a one-line concept, you know. Um, I, our first video was for uh, Come Inside, and uh, I think the, the concept was there, there was um, naked people dancing in a, in a bubble on the streets of New York City. <laughs> that was a, Spencer Tunick um, directed that video. He was kind of his his and there's like hbo documentaries about him his big thing is like doing these giant crowd shots of naked people in famous places and stuff um uh, and yes yeah yeah you've, you've seen that it's like you you know you think like oh this is gonna be real sex and it's like just not like not as sexy as, as that it's just a bunch of naked people which you know has its own inherent sexiness to it but it's more nudity than sexiness um and uh and that was the that was the first video then 
then uh, then that one was uh, um, basically the, the concept was uh, Zamboni. <laughs> we want to do a video with a Zamboni in it. Uh, uh, you know, Ice Rink. Orbit plays Ice Rink. Uh, also Zamboni. I think the, the, the concept, if there was one, was like Zamboni driver fantasy. <laughs> Dream sequence or something like that. But uh, So you never thought of going like the Aerosmith amazing crying route and having a, a starlet and doing some sort of like a uh, I, I follow along with the song sort of uh, video story yeah. video no I mean mostly no <laughs> not really and then we did another video which was Orbit Plays Laundromat that was that was my my concept that's good one. that was for uh, 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 I Want to Make You uh, let, me, let me see here what else does he have oh I know I actually I want to skip his question and go to my question or track seven, Motorama. Mm-hmm. Um, this song has kind of a John Spencer blues explosion feel to it. Mm. Is that uh, off base, or was that something that you were listening to when you? That were... song, that song was like the 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 white whale. <laughs> we uh, we recorded that song. I, I think that that recording that's on Libido Speedway is probably the third or fourth time. Uh, we recorded that song. We that was one of the first songs we wrote as a band, uh, and we played it live, and we still play it live, and it's a great, fun live song. And yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, you know, I was, I never was so into John Spencer that it was like a deep influence, and I think I got into John Spencer actually after that song was uh was written but yeah you know in that sort of realm of of things and 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 after it you know uh onward to uh uh white stripes and black keys and things mm-hmm. like sort of bluesy just kind of going you know and uh um and, and yeah, we, we it was a great song, still a great song to play live. Um, but every time we recorded it, it just never felt like it did live. And uh, still, when uh, when it'll come up, sort of <laughs> once a year on random on my my iPhone, uh, I, I cringe a little bit and usually skip it because it's like, ugh, this is not how this song should sound. But we Aren't there best. always songs like that though that? Even, yeah. you know, not only songs that you record, but then songs by bands that you might enjoy that they never pull off on record what they can do live with the song because it just it exists better when it's untethered, I guess would be the word uh, I would use when it's because, you know, if you're stuck to uh, a metronome and and uh, making sure that everything is perfect, that can kind of kill a little bit of the energy to the song um yeah i mean it's just songs live different in the studio uh that uh, david burn book i was talking about he was he was talking about uh their early talking heads recordings and how they just felt like it was just like alien <laughs> like they would just listen back to the stuff that they'd recorded in the studio and think like who is this this just does not sound at all like us you know it's just completely anathema and uh uh um cheap trick also uh 
that had that same kind of thing. Their their album in in color uh, always they never felt like was done right, uh, and and kind of they put out live versions of a lot of those songs on on there just to sort of prove like no, it's not like that. It's like this. It rocks, you know. And then they actually went in. There's a really great sort of bootleg recording that if you maybe do enough internet searching you can find which is they went uh, Steve Albini was a huge um Cheap Trick fan and mm-hmm. um and 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 got them into the studio into his studio uh and they just re-recorded the entire album with Steve Albini uh and uh and it's out there and it's just it's awesome I have heard so, of that yeah, you know, it's something people should seek out. It's the uh, yeah, it's, it, the cheap trick in color Steve Albini sessions. Nocturnal Auto Drive, actually, Nocturnal yeah. Auto Drive and Carnival. Jay paired these two songs together. Really? Um, All right. Because he said they have a very different feel. Jangly guitars, cleaner, almost roots rock undertone to it. it reminds him of the Gaslight Anthem. Uh, was this another side of the band that you explored more, or just anomalies for this record? Hmm. What were the songs again? Oh, Nocturnal Auto Drive. Well, uh, uh, yeah, and I mean, Carnival. you know, we we had a bunch of, you know, there were a bunch of different uh, influences that sort of came in in different ways. Um, you know, we haven't mentioned Sonic Youth. Mm-hmm. Um, Not yet. But, but that that role that, you know, feedback uh, and, uh, and, uh, and then sort of... Sonic Youth into My Bloody Valentine, uh, and then uh, uh, into uh, Swerve Driver. I really liked Swerve Driver a lot. Didn't get a lot. Yes, of, excellent band. A lot of credit. Um, but those like rolling bass lines from Swerve Driver, just like oh, so cool. And uh, and that was kind of the the thing with Nocturnal Auto Drive was to sort of uh, put together this just guitar wash and then basically let the bass sort of drive it. And uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, so you know, sort of in that realm. Um, and then yeah, Carnival. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was a little bit more like bar rocky, I suppose. Um, more just out of laziness than anything. <laughs> you know, good fun to play live, and it had a guitar solo, which was something we didn't do often. And then, what's the story behind Chapel Hill? That's quite a different. That song, uh, so we, I, I mentioned that Yeah was wrote, written in the studio, and we would oftentimes just sort of, I don't know, there, there's this, there's a certain thing about like making up music in, uh, in the rehearsal studio, kind of jamming or whatever, but when you're, when there's like the pressure of being recorded, or being in front of an audience, um, I don't know. There's a different kind of energy to it. Like I find that it sort of it creates this uh, this like switch that flips in the brain, which helps you sort of tap into the creative flow or whatever you want to call it, and uh, uh, and stuff just kind of comes out and. Uh, we were on tour and we had a particularly not well attended show <laughs> in Chapel Hill. And uh, I don't know, we were just bored on stage. And so I said, let's just make up the rest of the set. And that was one of the songs. Um, 
and we I don't know I guess the the set was being recorded and so we had a tape of it and uh, we said yeah let's put that on the album so it's not so, it, what you're hearing is not what was recorded in Chapel Hill you're hearing the song that was written in Chapel Hill and then we were gotcha yeah. So it's not an ode to uh, Super Chunk and... Well, I mean, the whole town of Chapel Hill is an ode to Super Chunk, is it not? <laughs> it is. <laughs> and the whole, you know, that whole realm, right? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, name all the great Chapel Hill bands. There are Polvo. so, many, so yes. many, and they all are great. Uh, Correct. Well, most of them. So, yeah. Next song, Paper Bag. Um, Jay says that this... Shows off the power pop aspect of the band. Sounds like it could be a cheap trick song. All right. And, I'll take and, it. And uh, he, he wonders what your pop influences are. And with this embrace of pop, if it was difficult to uh, embrace sort of the more angry and alternative aesthetics of the 90s. Because you definitely, and I'll add my own little two cents in there, there's definitely like a little bit more of a, not a sarcasm, or a, but a, a, a lighter tone to this record. It's not Godsmack. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Thank um, you. Thank you. And uh, so I, you, met, you had mentioned Cheap Trick earlier. I'm assuming that Cheap Trick has some bearing on, sure, your, I mean, on these influences. And, yeah, early on, you know, Cheap Trick, The Who... Uh, you know, the, I mean, the Beatles, all that kind of stuff sort of got me through mm-hmm. the seventies. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, a well-written song is a well-written song. Uh, you know, you, hooks are good. Uh, you know, there's uh, no point in being so obscure that no one other than you enjoys you. <laughs> It's a, I call that musical masturbation. It's just like, you know. And there, you know, there are bands out there. I, I, I feel like I mean, Velvet Underground was was another big influence. Just that, and 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 that, that Billy Bragg stuff that I mentioned earlier. Like, uh, you know, simple uh, is good. Uh, you know, you ought to be able to write like children's songs. It's like relatable, simple, good stuff. It's funny that you mentioned that because I actually do a, another podcast um, that corresponds with a, a book that I wrote about power ballads. And I talked to Eric Martin, the lead singer of Mr. Big, who wrote To Be With You. <laughs> and we talked about how To Be With You is essentially like a nursery rhyme melody. Yeah. And it's that sort of, and it's universal in its sort of appeal. You know, there are little kids today that can hear that song and and understand to be with you just as much as there are 45-year-old parents who remember that song from, you know, when they were in high school or in college. And there's something really to be said about that sort of simplistic, sing-songy vocal melody that that is universal in its appeal. Yeah, it, it brings us all together, you know. That's always a nice thing. I probably just caught you off guard with all that stuff no no it's all right i'm I'm, like just (laughs) had a real mr big flashback that i'll i'll get over it (laughs) okay (laughs) but you know that's a good song i mean it's a it's a well-written song i i i can he wrote that when he was like 14 there you go which is the amazing part to me it's like i i'm pretty sure that nothing i did when i was 14 matters 
Like, there's nothing existing today from when I was 14. And he wrote something that is probably going to live forever. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, I, I need to step up my game because uh, I'm, I'm losing to a 14-year-old right now. Uh, and then the end of the album, there's uh, track 13, Gazer, which is actually two songs. Yeah. What was the you purpose know, of uh, not actually splitting the songs into two songs? Well... Is there, so, is there a connection? I mean, part of it, we, we were just so mesmerized and excited to be in the studio that we just wanted to do everything you know we just wanted the album that just sort of went on forever we wanted you know and uh i mean gazer was another song that was sort of written in the studio we we spent a lot of time in the studio with that and uh you know i, I sort of put together um i think it was an idea on like a mellotron or something and uh um kind of kept adding layers and layers to it and and uh and that became that and then um paul uh it's i mean we just you get kind of stir crazy and bored in the studio so i think paul got stoned one day and went out with a dat recorder and a little stereo microphone and was walking all around we were recording in longview farms uh which is out in western massachusetts and uh and it, it was like winter and so he's sort of crunching through the snow and the woods and he's like i got this cool like you know thing let's put it on the album it's like cool and then like i had this recording of crickets let's put that on the album and you know we just sort of ended up with all this stuff it was you know didn't cost anything extra on a cd to put that on there so we just put it on as sort of the uh the hidden hidden track of the album um and uh yeah it's not, not. Do you think of that? On, it's not full on art, but uh, but right. it's it's not revolution number nine either. Take that um, as you. <laughs> a lot of bands tried to max out their space on the on the albums for better or, or worse. Are there, is there anything now that you listen to this record and you go, hmm, I might have trimmed that. I might have. Because a lot of the records we listen to, we go, well, this is a really great nine-song album, but now there's 15 tracks on this record, and I could have really ended five, six tracks ago. Well, we would usually go in the studio with about 30 songs, uh, okay. and and we would we would just trim the whole way through. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, in retrospect, uh, like I said, you know, I think we could have still recorded a better version of of motorama and maybe it would about add been on another album or on and on like that but i i don't know i mean you know we're just sort of evolving i mean cds were relatively new at that point i mean in terms of sort of ubiquity um so this idea of having that much space to sort of spread out uh um was interesting uh and uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we just did. It was kind of a, I don't know, sign of the times. Like I said, you know, if we were still doing stuff today, it'd probably be a little bit different. So, in going through the record, we mentioned a lot of different artists. You had met, you mentioned Sonic Youth, and there's definitely some like feedback squalls that remind me of of Sonic Youth stuff. We mentioned Prixies and Nirvana, and and newer bands like Gaslight Anthem. And one of the things that we struggle with is is diversity in a record where if it's too similar, the album gets 
repetitive and boring. But yeah. if it's too different, you can't really wrap your head around what they're trying to do totally. because it's so I, I, I feel like this, it strikes a good balance between different influences, different sounds. Are you happy with the diversity oh, that's of the nice. record? That's, I'm, I'm, that's really nice to hear. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, again, you, you lose your objectivity uh, and, and, and especially for something as sort of abstract as, as, that uh i don't know uh you know i mean I, I wanted later on to make an album that you would put on because x <laughs> because i'm working and you know and i want an album for that uh, or i'm you know having sex and i want an album for that uh like you know, an album for something. And I felt like a lot of the, the Orbit albums were a little too, like, wide-ranging, you know? Um, but on the other hand, a lot of those albums, uh, yeah, it's like, if you're not having sex, don't put that on. Why would you put on the Downward Spiral? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's, it's like it'd be an awkward situation at work. Uh, yeah, right, so. exactly and uh yeah you know uh so so yeah it's a really t difficult balance to 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 try and 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 get right um uh but yeah i mean we would just kind of we had a wide variety of interests and a wide variety of influences and we certainly had opinions about what was good and what was not uh but um you know but when all was said and done, it wasn't like, oh, we created a great, you know, the most balls to the wall album ever or, you know, something like that. I mean, with, certainly with Libido Speedway, there was some uh, uh, sexual energy uh, uh, sort of driving through a lot of it. And uh, and that's how it ended up getting its name, because also it was a lot of, uh, I don't know, just at that time, I was uh, sort of a lot of my songwriting process was sort of putting together song ideas and then driving around in my car and listening to them and seeing how they kind of resonated around in, in there. Um, and so, you know, I thought it was, a, it ended up being sort of a lot of um, driving <laughs> in, in sort of both senses. Uh, you know, when people talk about it's a very driving music, uh, they don't mean getting in the car, but uh, this, this was kind of both. Well, we've um, crushed the one-hour mark, so this would be actually a good point to start wrapping things up. You had mentioned before we started um, that you have a podcast, so why don't you tell uh, the folks out there a little bit about your podcast? Well, yeah, so um, the funny thing is that uh, so Orbit got signed in 94, and before, before Orbit, uh, I... Uh, was do I worked at a at a um, sort of a tech oriented publishing company called O'Reilly? Uh, they're now called O'Reilly mm -hmm. O'Reilly Media. Anybody who's a programmer will know will know O'Reilly. Uh, and I'm um, not, but I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and they uh, were kind of at the crossroads of the of the beginning of the web. Uh, and the were the creators of the first commercial website, and uh, and and I, I worked on that uh, uh, early on. I got so excited about things, I started my own one of the first web development companies. Um, 
and uh, and and was doing that when when Orbit got signed, uh, and and so uh, when Orbit ended up getting dropped, um, I'd been sort of keeping up with web stuff all along, uh, and um, and had a lot of friends in the web world uh, who had kind of gone up, you know, kind of had started out early on and had kind of figured out things and started uh, Blogger and uh, Flickr and later on Twitter and things like that. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I ended up getting back into the web world <clears throat> and uh, my wife and I did Ringo Starr's website for a number of years. Um, and, uh, I started, I eventually started a company, um, called Lullabot, uh, which is what I do now. I run a company called Lullabot, uh, which you can find at Lullabot, L-U-L-L-A-B-O-T.com. Uh, and, uh, it's almost 40 people now. Um, and, uh, we do, we do the Grammys website. That's a big one in the music industry. We've did, done a lot of work with, uh, Sony music over the years. <clears throat> um, we do uh, a lot of work with uh, we help Martha Stewart launch um, their website we do a lot of work with um, NBC Universal and uh, a lot of a lot of media work but we've also done things like the Harvard University website and uh, and things like that and that's what I do now <laughs> is, is that uh, and uh, uh, we and we have uh, podcasts that we've done over time um uh, Lullabot is well known uh, around a an open source content management system called Drupal, um, and we started doing a Drupal podcast um, back in 2006 when we started, and uh, um, and things have sort of morphed and changed over time a little bit. And uh, and these days I'm uh, have uh, kind of wanted to kind of explore sort of the more creative end of things like. Um, de design and web, but also sort of uh, creativity around um, development, and 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 to some extent, sort of explore uh, the relationship. Because I find that a lot of what I've learned in my musical career, and and it, learning to write songs, but also learning to to be in a band and promote a band and all that kind of stuff, has has really very directly translated over to. Um, what we're doing with Lullabot and, you know, things like finding talented people to work with and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, and so uh, I, I do a, a podcast with our, our creative director, um, Jared Ponchot, and I do a podcast called The Creative Process, uh, which is now one of several podcasts that Lullabot does. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and it's interesting. We get to talk to various people from different uh, creative disciplines um, and sort of try and see what what is similar, you know, when people sit down to do creative things, uh, whether they're painting or photography or architecture or music, um, you know, what's, uh, what, what are the things that are similar and how do people solve um, the, the difficulties and stuff like that. So... Um, yeah, so podcasting wise, that's that's what I'm I'm doing these days, and then I I've written uh, uh, sound music for a bunch of the podcasts, which is not what I hope to be known for when I die, but 
Um, <laughs> it's kind of a silly, silly thing to do is um, make music for podcasts because I don't. Funny. I don't think that that's what'll be on your gravestone. I hope not. <laughs> Hopefully, it like be a me and a picture of me and Ringo. That would be all right. I suppose that would be pretty cool. Yeah. Not many people have that. Nope. So, all right, Jeff. Well, sincerely, thank you for sharing your time with us. And uh, where can we find you on the web? Where Where are your presences that we, uh, if people want to stalk you? Yeah, lullabot.com, yeah. uh, uh, jjeff.com, jjeff, j-j-e-f-f is sort of my online uh, moniker, so .com, and also on the Twitter uh, and on the Facebook. And Orbit uh, is still, we're still doing some stuff. We we're uh, have gotten together to do some reunion shows. I guess we call them reunion shows at this point. I mean, we're still all friendly and, um, uh, you know, it's not sort of with the momentum that it used to be. But we actually got in into the studio earlier this year and, and laid down some tracks. And I don't know. I, we'll see what happens with that. I'm always a little dubious of bands that sort of fall off the radar and then come back with uh, new material. <laughs> Pixies. <laughs> and it's not very good, you know. Uh, and uh, so, you know, hopefully... <laughs> If it does come out, it would be okay. But uh, well, and was... now you can release it at your own leisure. If you want to just put out an MP3 on a SoundCloud page, you can do that. And you don't have yeah, pressures. I suppose so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, but but certainly uh, 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 Facebook.com/slash Orbit Band uh, or OrbitBand.com uh, would be good places to keep up uh, with with the orbit band and uh and if the that new music does come out or you wanted to cajole us into uh continue to remind us to keep working on it as we're all so distracted with other things these days uh um that's that's where you do it that's where you we'd cajole love, people and we that's and where you we'd, cajole. Love we'd love to hear from you cajole right. away jeff thanks so much thanks tim take care all right bye-bye bye So, Jay, that was our interview with Jeff Robbins. And uh, let's talk about the record a little bit. We covered it somewhat during the interview, but we didn't we didn't deep dig down deep into it. Um, so let's talk about Libido Speedway. I, the, some of the things I mentioned during the uh, during the episode was uh, one of the things I, I enjoyed, but also found um, could be something that get in the way for other people is there's a lot of diversity on the record. There are songs that have a very Nirvana bleach tinge to them. Uh, Medicine is a very Pixies-esque song with the, the bass line during the verses and the little guitar lead. And uh, as Jeff mentioned during the interview, that they basically called that the Pixies song while they were writing it. Mm. And uh, a song like Motorama kind of reminded me of uh, John Spencer Blues Explosion. And there were, uh, there were a, a variety of sounds and textures and... Uh, they did a quite a bit, a number of uh, layering of uh, guitars and vocals and instruments on this record. So, I found myself, I, I did really enjoy the record, though. It has an energy to it and a diversity 
uh, from song to song that kept me interested. There's really not a lot of slow stuff on the record. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, towards the end, there's uh, the Gazer, which I wasn't a huge fan of, and I actually we talked about whether the album was too long. Um, and then there's an untitled, and the Gazer is actually two songs, and then there's an untitled sort of noise track. Um, but uh, overall, I found this to be a really strong sort of pop rock record, definitely you know showing its influences. Like we mentioned, I think Nirvana and Pixies are two very blatant ones, and then there's some some other album or some other bands that we brought up. But I'm curious as to your take on this record, since you. Uh, um, listened to it probably 10 years ago and i don't know if you've listened to it since <laughs> uh yeah i had i had not listened to it since um i vaguely remembered you know medicine and what that sounded like but that was about it um so when i put the record back on this time uh, i gotta say i was a little leery uh, with the first couple songs um yeah the first track called yeah is uh you know it it sounds Sounds good. I mean, it's not awful, but it, it is very reminiscent of Nirvana um, from a tone standpoint, and even from a um, sort of the you know the chorus of just you know using a, a common phrase or some sort of you know um, yeah or whatever, and, and turning a melody out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, bicycle song, a little more clever lyric, but kind of still in the same ballpark. So at this point, I'm a couple songs in, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, it's going to be 14 songs of this. But then uh, Wake Up comes on, and it's pretty different. Um, same format. It's not like they bust out keyboards or anything, but all of a sudden there's like a, an offset between the guitars and the rhythm section. And, you know, the bass is, the bass is locking up and with the vocal and kind of driving the song and really is a big melodic presence and the guitar is syncopated and it, it sort of has this kind of um uh, kind of a plotting rhythm so you know right there i start to you know get interested and um from there on out it's sort of a like you said a, a roller coaster of uh, of i guess songs that kind of fit together in groupings but they're n- not always um you know together Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this, a song like Amp, you know, I hear a lot of replacements in that. And I think they do that actually really well. I think it suits his voice really well. I think it suits the sound of the band really well. Um, and it's, you know, got some legitimate hooks to it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's got a really strong chorus. Um, one of the other songs, um, i my notes here, um, Rockets as well kind of has a, almost like who meets replacements meets cheap trick kind of vibe to it. And then Paperboy, um, I would include with those two as well. Uh, you know, when that song starts the intro of that, I, I kept waiting for Robin Zander to start singing. I mean, it, just, <laughs> it sounded so much, I mean, not, in a, not in a rip off way, but like in a, uh, a genuine, you know, quality, um, you know, pop, power pop kind of you know rock format like they genuinely got that um and that song's got a really strong chorus as well so uh i really i I like that material the most i think on this record um there's some moments where it gets kind of in a roots rock direction 
So like Carnival and Nocturnal Overdrive are really kind of moody, more shimmery, jangly guitars. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little bit darker and more open. Um, and those kind of, I don't know, they reminded me of uh, like Springsteen or um, Gaslight Anthem or, you know, they're almost in that territory. And I think they did that kind of stuff fairly well too i think that type of material kind of complements the um you know the more pop oriented stuff fairly well you know in terms of shifting color a little bit um but yeah there's i think the yeah why don't you or why you don't sorry why you won't and uh bicycle song you know so i would consider that stuff the nirvana stuff which i'm it's a, it's fine it's just kind of forgettable wake up in chapel hill i would consider sort of their they're almost doing like a, a chapel hill style like post punkish alternative mm-hmm. thing um those two sounds of the band um varying success within that i think but the the core of the band sort of being just a you know kind of a pop power pat pop slash you know um rock band i think they it works pretty well i think uh, you know vocally he does enough to keep it interesting he's got kind of some different voices that he uses mm-hmm. um dynamically it's solid um the drums are excellent on the record um that always helps so you know in terms of of that part of the band i, I think it works really well and the couple songs at the end that you mentioned gazer and libido speedway i mean i appreciate gazer in terms of I think he's using a Mellotron maybe on that. And, yeah. You know, it's a diff, completely different um, song from anything else on the record. It's, you know, slow and moody. But um, I, I think if you shorten that down to like a nice little like one and a half minute song or something at the end of the record there, I think you'd be in good shape. I'm not quite sure why it needed to be eight and a half minutes and then have another three minutes of nothing but noise. But, yeah, I think... Uh, I think there's some good stuff in here. You know, there's some stuff that's a little bit forgettable and not quite as original, but uh, I think the, the meat of it is pretty solid. And this came out in 97, so we kind of know that that was sort of the ending point for a lot of... I think if this album had come out maybe a year or two earlier, uh, they might have been looking at a deeper number of singles. But 97 is when you get your, you know your new metal rap rock boy band uh, pop sensation sort of invasion and it pushed a lot of like I would say this is a pretty straight up you know pop rock band and it pushed a lot of those bands off the radio uh, fairly quickly right. and uh, you know there there I think there are probably two to three singles after medicine that could have gotten some airplay uh but that just didn't happen because more because of the time than anything. Whereas right. this, is this, it came out in like 95, then maybe you're dealing with, you know, a more friendly radio environment, but yeah, uh, this... that's the, that's the, 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 uh, the part of history we can't change. Yeah. Oh, well, they were just... able to do some cool stuff with like, um, you know, they can write a hook, they can write a, a, a memorable line, a melody. They also can kind of get fairly sophisticated. I think a song like Rockets has all kinds of, you know, 
memorable pieces to it, but it's also pretty sophisticated in terms of how that chorus is built. It sort of has two parts to it, and mm -hmm. rhythmically, it's um, pretty bombastic at times, and um, kind of kind of start stops and interesting fills, and so this there's some there's some levels of um, sophistication here that um, I think at first listen you don't you wouldn't quite get or if you only listen to some of the songs you wouldn't quite understand about the band but they um, you know there's some there's some meat on the bone here in terms yes of definitely well uh, I think that uh, covers that we had a nice long interview with Jeff he was very generous with his time and uh, you got our takes on Orbit and their debut album Libido Speedway from 1997. If you have thoughts on this record or on our interview, uh, please feel free to chime in at the normal places, digmeoutpodcast.com, our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, and feel free also to hit up our iTunes uh, page and leave us some positive feedback. So, for Jay, I'm Tim, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. 